This is the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. All right. Well, I want to begin by thanking Marlon, Dustin, and William for this opportunity to discuss Scripture. Our question is, does the Bible teach that Jesus is Yahweh? Now, this is not a philosophical question, nor is this a question about historical interpretation. It is a question about the Bible. Does the Bible teach that Jesus is Yahweh? Our goal, then, is to show that at least one passage reveals that Jesus is Yahweh. Because if one passage reveals that Jesus is Yahweh, then the Bible teaches that Jesus is Yahweh. We will make two contentions from the Bible. First, we contend that the Bible does not deny that Jesus is Yahweh. Second, we contend that the Bible teaches that Jesus is Yahweh. As to our first contention that the Bible does not deny that Jesus is Yahweh, we would point to three passages where people accuse Jesus of blasphemy. In John 5, Jesus healed on the Sabbath and the Jews sought to kill him because, quote, he was making himself equal to God, end quote. In John 8, Jesus said, quote, before Abraham was, I am, end quote. And the Jews tried to stone him, which is the biblical punishment for blasphemy. Finally, in John 10, Jesus said, quote, I and the Father are one, end quote. And the Jews picked up stones and replied, quote, you, being a man, make yourself God, end quote. In each of these passages, the Bible does not deny the validity of the Jewish response, whereas the Bible regularly clarifies when people misunderstand Jesus, it chooses not to do so here. Our second contention is that the Bible teaches that Jesus is Yahweh. We will make three arguments to support this contention. The first argument is the argument from worship. It has three premises. Premise one, the Bible teaches, teaches people to worship and serve Yahweh alone. Premise two, the Bible teaches that people worship Jesus. And therefore, our conclusion, Jesus must be Yahweh. We will all agree on the first premise. Deuteronomy 6 verse 4 says, listen, Israel, Yahweh is our God. Yahweh is one. The two titles for the one God in this verse are the titles Elohim, God, and Yahweh. The title Yahweh is the specific covenantal name for Israel's God. It was used in the Garden of Eden, it was used by the patriarchs, and it was revealed by God to Moses at the burning bush. But the term Elohim, God, is a more generic term. It can describe a variety of beings, both divine and human. It often refers to Yahweh, but can also refer to beings in God's heavenly counsel. Psalm 82 verse 1 says, quote, God, Elohim, stands in the divine assembly. He administers judgment in the midst of the gods, Elohim, end quote. It can refer to demons or to God's messenger as well. As Dr. Smith, Dustin, has argued, and I agree, it can refer to humans. Exodus 7 verse 1 says, I have made you Elohim to Pharaoh in reference to Moses. Psalm 45 verse 6 says, your throne Elohim is forever and ever in reference to the Davidic king. It can even refer to the spirit of a dead person as with Samuel in 1 Samuel 28 verse 13. Thus the title Elohim has a much wider range of meaning 
than the title Yahweh. It can describe Yahweh or various representatives of Yahweh, including both angels and humans. And it also can refer to the gods, Elohim, of the nations. These are idols who are certainly not Yahweh. And this is why the Old Testament specifies that Yahweh is your God or Elohim a total of 438 times. Yahweh is unlike any of these other Elohim. Deuteronomy 10 verse 17 says, For Yahweh, your Elohim, is the Elohe Elohim, the God of gods. No other God is Yahweh. The Bible teaches very clearly that there is a creator creature distinction. Only Yahweh stands on the side of creator. Everything else, including any other being that might be titled an Elohim, stands on the side of the creatures. Therefore, Israel must worship and serve Yahweh alone. The first commandment states, quote, you shall have no other Elohim beside me, end quote. The second commandment adds that Israel must not quote, bow in worship to them or serve them, end quote. Over 100 times, the Old Testament warns against worshiping and serving any God except Yahweh, the true God. Thus, premise one of my arguments states that the Bible teaches to worship and serve Yahweh alone. This is why Daniel 7, 13, and 14 should shock us. It reads, quote, suddenly one like a son of man was coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was escorted before him. He was given dominion and glory and a kingdom so that those of every people, nation, and language should serve him." End quote. Now there is much worthy of discussion in this passage, but we will focus on the statement that, quote, those of every people, nation, and language should serve him. End quote. The Aramaic verb often translated serve is palach and means to worship pay reverence to or serve deity. Brown Driver Briggs gives the gloss to pay reverence or serve deity. The Hebrew and Aramaic lexicon of the Old Testament gives the, the gloss, quote, to serve God. The Bible, or the verb, is used only 10 times in the Bible. It always refers to the service or worship of a god. In Ezra, it refers to serving God in the temple. In Daniel 3 and Daniel 6, it refers to serving either the false gods of Babylon, which Daniel and his friends refused to do, or to serving the true God. But in Daniel 7, people of all nations, Palak, serve the Son of Man. Now, the Aramaic Targums use this same term in the Ten Commandments, where people are warned not to serve other gods. The Old Greek translation uses a word that likewise refers specifically to religious service or devotion. It's the Greek word that Jesus uses when he says to, quote, worship the Lord your God and serve him only in Luke 4, verse 8. Thus, Daniel prophesies that people of all nations will serve the Son of Man. Since Jesus himself and others called Jesus the Son of Man over 80 times in the Gospel, my argument stands. Premise 1. The Bible teaches people to worship and serve Yahweh alone. Premise 2. The Bible teaches that people worship Jesus the Son of Man. Conclusion. Jesus must be Yahweh. I'll now pass the time to Samuel for our next arguments.
Thank you, Kyle. Really appreciate that. Uh, I will move on to our second argument uh, in this debate, and that is going to be the argument from explicit passages. Now, the purpose of this argument is to demonstrate, of course, that the scriptures in plain terms teach that Jesus is Yahweh. The first passage we'll be looking at is Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 to 11, although I'll focus specifically on verses 10 to 11. In Isaiah 45, verse 23, Yahweh declares, quote, To me, every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance, end quote. Uh, by the way, the uh, Septuagint reading of that same passage reads, quote, Every tongue shall confess, uh, end quote. And the Apostle Paul picks up on that and expounds on that in Philippians 2, 10 to 11, saying that, quote, At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. What does Paul mean by Lord? Well, if we allow scripture to interpret scripture, it clearly means that Jesus is Yahweh. Uh, that's the first passage. The second passage uh, is 1 Corinthians 8, verse 6. Uh, Dr. Carl Esseri just now pointed to the Shema, uh, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, which teaches the Lord our God is one and the apostle paul alludes to that certainly uh, in first corinthians chapter 8 verse 4 when he says quote there is no god but one end quote and so when he further expounds on the shema we see him distinguishing lord and god attributing the title god to the father and lord which is yahweh in the shema to jesus he says quote yet for us there is one god the father from whom are all things and for whom we exist and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and through whom, uh, through whom are all things, and through whom we exist. And as Dr. Carl pointed out earlier, the creator-creature distinction forces us to, in this text, recognize that Jesus belongs in the creator category, and hence, quite explicitly, the scriptures teach Jesus is Yahweh. By the way, uh, Paul is not the only one to do this. In Jude 1.4, uh, the apostle writes, uh, calling, referring to Jesus as, quote, our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ, end quote. And so when we allow scripture to speak for itself, uh, we see that the scriptures in plain terms, explicit terms, called Jesus Lord. Now, there are many other passages like this, such as, of course, as you most of us would know, uh, Thomas' confession about Jesus being hokoriosmo, hoteosmo, uh, my Lord and my God, but we, we won't have time to expound on that. So it's only going to be these three passages as far as the second argument, the argument from explicit passages. Finally, in our third argument, we'll look at an argument from what I call replacement passages. Uh, now, the idea of replacement passages is that there are certain titles attributed to God in the Old Testament or certain verses, but in the New Testament, the apostles replaced that with Jesus, demonstrating that Jesus is indeed Yahweh. The first one is that Yahweh is the first and the last. In Isaiah 42, verse 11 to 12, Yahweh declares, quote, my glory I will not give to another, end quote. And he goes on to declare again, quote, I am the first and I am the last, end quote. Now, having said that he's not going to give his glory to another, uh, we should find it shocking if we deny that Jesus is Yahweh because Jesus is going to apply the title directly to himself in Revelation 1.17. He says, quote, fear not, I am the first and the last, end quote. Now, the apostle Peter clearly, and, and I mean clearly here, explicitly, well, not explicitly in word for word, but in his citation of the Old Testament, treats Jesus as not just Yahweh, 
but the Lord of hosts. In Isaiah chapter 8, verse 12, Yahweh commands the inhabitants of Jerusalem, saying, quote, not to fear, not fear what they fear, nor be in dread, but a lot of hosts, him you shall honor as holy, end quote. Now, Peter is going to cite that, except he replaces a lot of hosts with Christ the Lord. In 1 Peter 3, 14 to 15, the apologetics proof text, Peter cites this passage and says, quote, have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy. End quote. And this makes it very clear that it's not just Paul that considers Jesus Yahweh or, or John uh, or, or even Jude for that matter. The Apostle Peter himself substitutes the term Yahweh, a lot of hosts, for Jesus Christ. Uh, two other passages, uh, and I'm paying close attention to the time here. Uh, number three, uh, Isaiah saw Yahweh. In Isaiah 6, verse 1 to 10, we see that Isaiah has a vision of Yahweh, and the Apostle John is going to cite that uh, vision. Uh, or, or rather allude to it in John chapter 12, verse 40 to 41, uh, where he cites Isaiah 6.10 before declaring, quote, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him, end quote. So who did Isaiah see? Well, Isaiah says he saw the angels declaring, holy is the Lord, Yahweh. Who does uh, John say Isaiah saw? Well, he says he saw Jesus. And so allowing scripture to speak, we are forced, left with no option, but to conclude that Jesus is Yahweh. Finally, there are, there are other passages uh, that deal specifically with the Exodus, fourthly, uh, and that is the we, we see Yahweh's involvement in the Exodus. Uh, Yahweh both saves his people and he also destroys uh, people, his people in Egypt because of their unbelief. And we see the apostles uh, citing this uh, in the New Testament. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4, uh, the apostle Paul says, quote, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, referring to the Exodus, and says, quote, and the rock was Christ, end quote. Who followed the people of Israel in the wilderness? The Apostle Paul says, Christ did. The Old Testament tells us Yahweh did. What about 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 9? It says, quote, we must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, end quote. Who did the people of Israel put to test in the wilderness according to Deuteronomy? Yahweh. According to the New Testament, Jesus. Finally, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 26 says, quote, he considered the reproach, by the way, this is speaking of Moses. Moses, it says, quote, considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward, end quote. Did Moses consider the reproach of Christ? But Christ didn't exist back then. Well, Jesus is Yahweh, and hence the scriptures regularly cross-reference, applying Jesus to the Yahweh passages of the Old Testament. And so, in conclusion, we've presented three arguments. The argument from worship, the argument uh, from uh, explicit passages, and the argument from replacement passages. And so, one of these would be enough to demonstrate that Jesus is Yahweh. But I think in this case, we have an overwhelming uh, number of passages to demonstrate that. I look forward to seeing the replies and the opening statements from our opponent. Thanks again. All right, thank you, Sam and Kyle, for that open statement. All right, uh, Dustin and William, you guys are up for your 50-minute open statement. And uh, I understand, William, you are the one that's going to be presenting the open statement, correct? That's right. Let me get this set up here. All right, excellent. Well, good morning to our esteemed debate uh, dialogue partners in Malaysia. I want to start by thanking Marlon Wilson and Samuel and Kyle for taking the time to dialogue with us on this important question. 
Does the Bible teach that Jesus is Yahweh? My opening encouragement to the audience is simple. You come in with your beliefs about who Jesus is and how the Bible portrays him. My encouragement is for you to be like the Bereans in the book of Acts. No matter what you currently believe, whether you agree with me or not, please try to set aside your beliefs and evaluate the evidence freshly. I want to begin by pointing out a few differences in our approach as compared with our Trinitarian dialogue partners. I'm sure we'll agree on many, many things in the Bible, but where will we disagree tonight? Number one, we will disagree on the definition of Yahweh. Our side following the lexicons will define Yahweh as a singular noun with a singular referent, the Father alone, the only true God, who in the New Testament is simply called the Father. Number two, we'll disagree on the definition of Jesus. Our side will define Jesus as the promised King, the promised Messiah of Israel, the Son of God. Nonetheless, Jesus was born in Bethlehem, and he is currently exalted to the right hand of God, his Father. Number three, we will disagree on how to interpret basic facts. There are basic facts relevant to this debate. Jesus is worshipped. Jesus is called God. Yahweh texts are applied to Jesus, as we heard in their opening statement, and so on. These facts have to be interpreted in light of the immediate context and the whole of Scripture. You will have to decide who does the better job of that. With this in mind, I offer seven opening points. The first one, Yahweh is the personal name of the God of Israel, used 6,800 plus times in the Hebrew Bible. And Yahweh is a single person, the Father, not a plurality of persons. Yahweh is explicitly and regularly illustrated in the Hebrew Bible as one single person, as we can see with over 20,000 singular references, pronouns, verbs, adjectives, pronominal suffices. One would be hard pressed, in fact, to find a more thoroughly attested truth in the Bible than the 20,000 plus references to Yahweh being only one person. And Yahweh just is the Father, not the Son. As it says in Deuteronomy 32, 6, do you thus repay Yahweh, O foolish and unwise people? Is not he your Father who has bought you? He has created you and he established you. Isaiah 63, 16 says, for you are our Father. You, O Yahweh, are our Father. The one who redeems us from old is your name. Or Malachi 1, 6, then if I am a Father, where is my honor, says Yahweh of hosts. While our distinguished dialogue partners would agree that Yahweh is the Father, our contention is that Yahweh is the Father alone, not the Father, Son, and Spirit. And this fits with over 20,000 singular references for Yahweh. God is one person, the Father alone, and Yahweh never declares himself to be the Son. Our second point we want to offer is that Jesus is the given human name for the Son of God. In Matthew 1.21, it says, She will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus. In Luke 1.31, it says, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you will name him Jesus. As such, Jesus is not alive or present anywhere in the Hebrew Bible. Yahweh, who as a reminder is the Father alone, is never called the Hebrew Yeshua or Yehoshua. And although this hardly needs to be stated since it is self-evident, God and Jesus are two distinct beings. Lair Hurtado points out the obvious for our benefit. There are two distinguishable figures, God and Jesus. Our third point tonight is that the messianic expectation set forth by the Hebrew Bible and confirmed by the New Testament looks forward to a figure who is distinguished from Yahweh. In Deuteronomy 18, in part of verses 15 through 19, Moses is speaking. He says, Yahweh, your God, will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your countrymen. You shall listen to him. Later, he quotes Yahweh saying, I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. It shall come about that whoever will not listen to my words, which he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. We notice several things about this text. The figure promised by Yahweh is a human prophet, like Moses, meaning he will be a highly qualified human prophet, not Yahweh. 
Second point, from among your countrymen is what it says, not a member of Israel. He's a member of Israel, not an angel, not a divine being, not a Gentile, and certainly not Yahweh himself. Third, Yahweh puts his words into the mouth of this human Israelite prophet so that the human prophet authoritatively functions as a spokesman of Yahweh. You can see John 14 and Acts 3. Next, the prophet speaks these words in the name of Yahweh, making the prophet Yahweh's authorized agent. And finally, the New Testament confirms that Jesus is this promised prophet like Moses in Acts 3 and 7. Our next text to support this is in Psalm 2, which says in part, Why are the nations in an uproar and the people devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against Yahweh and against his Messiah. But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree. Yahweh said to me, you are my son. Today I've become your father. Ask of me and I will surely give you the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. We notice several things about this passage as well. First, there are two figures of note in this royal psalm, Yahweh and Yahweh's anointed king. Second, Yahweh calls this anointed king my son. Third, if the, if the anointed king is Yahweh's son, then Yahweh must be the father. Yahweh cannot be the son. This, next, the psalm repeatedly illustrates Yahweh with singular references. His Messiah, I have installed my king, my holy mountain. He said, you are my son. I have become your father. Ask of me, I will give you. Thoroughly demonstrating that Yahweh is the father alone. Next, Yahweh is clearly greater than the anointed king as Yahweh gives the king his inheritance, and all fathers in the ancient world were recognized as greater than their sons. Yahweh and the son are not co-equal. And finally, Psalm 2 is cited, alluded to, and echoed extensively in the New Testament to refer to the Father and Jesus. See Acts 4 and Revelation 12. And I just want to point out that if you look at the Acts 4 reference, notice how in Acts 4 these Christians are praying to God, they're calling him Lord, and they distinguish the Lord Yahweh from his servant Jesus who you anointed. And they do that by quoting this psalm. Finally, we want to talk about Psalm 110.1. Yahweh says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. We notice four things about this text. First, the oracle of David presents two figures, Yahweh and a second Lord figure. The original setting here is a human king from David's line. This person is clearly distinguished from Yahweh. The second Lord in this passage is the Hebrew noun Adonai. And after looking up every single one of the 195 occurrences of this word in the Hebrew Bible, I can confidently say when this word appears, it never once refers to Yahweh. Most frequently, it's used in the context of a human superior. Second, in Psalm 110.1, Yahweh summons the second Lord to sit at his right hand. A king's right hand is a highly exalted but still subordinate position to that king, who in this case is Yahweh. Psalm 110.1 also indicates that Yahweh will be the one to put all enemies under the feet of the second Lord. Third, notice again that Yahweh speaks as only one person, my right hand, until I make. And again, finally, the New Testament quotes or alludes to Psalm 110.1 in reference to the Father and the Son more than any other Old Testament passage. You can look at Acts 2 for one example of this. Our fourth contention tonight is that Yahweh frequently sends, empowers, qualifies, and authorizes agents who represent Yahweh in the context of widely accepted Jewish principles of agency. And in this context, Jesus is God's supreme agent. Here are several points about that. First, human kings, Solomon, it said in 1 Chronicles 29, sat on the throne of Yahweh. Angelic messengers, in Exodus 23, it says, my name, Yahweh, is in him for an angel, which by definition is a messenger. Jesus is the agent of God, and this should not be controversial as the Gospel of John describes Jesus as the one whom God, in, in the context of John, is the Father, has sent at least 40 times just in the Gospel of John. 
And fourth, the Son of Man has the authority to forgive sins in Matthew 9, 6. We also notice that the Father has given all things into Jesus' hand, judgment and the ability to give life in John 3 and 13 and 5. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus in Matthew 28. So we should not be surprised that Jesus, the agent of Yahweh, represents Yahweh in a manner that allows Yahweh, our God, to share his name with Jesus. We notice in Philippians 2.10, God exalts Jesus and shares his name with Jesus. All four Gospels indicate that in the triumphal entry, Jesus comes in the name of Yahweh. And Jesus himself admits to being the agent of the Father. In John 5, he says, I have come in my Father's name. And in John 10, he says, these works that I do in my Father's name testify about me. And finally, here's scholarly support for contention for. Richard Bauckham says, as God's plenipotentiary, Jesus exercises all the functions of God. Larry Hurtado says, Jesus is the unique principal agent of God. James McGrath says, the agent can not only carry out the divine functions, but also be depicted in divine language, sit on God's throne or alongside God, and even bear the divine name. And finally, Daniel Kirk says, idealized human figures are a widespread and wide-ranging reality in the literature of early Judaism. Human beings of the past, present, or idealized future who are depicted with actions, descriptions, or attributes that are typically reserved for God alone. This leads us to the fifth contention, which is that Jesus and Yahweh are clearly different persons who have mutually exclusive traits. And we are going to contend that if we can just prove one simultaneous and intrinsic difference, that that implies that Jesus and Yahweh are separate and not identical. Our first contention for this is that Yahweh is eternal and Jesus was brought into existence. Psalm 93 says, Yahweh reigns, you are from everlasting. Isaiah 40 says, the everlasting God, Yahweh. Talking about Jesus, it says, now the genesis of Jesus was as follows in Matthew 1. That which is begotten in Mary is of the Holy Spirit in Matthew 1. And Luke 1, it says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child begotten will be called the Son of God. The second subpoint here is that God cannot die and Jesus did die. God cannot die is stated very clearly in 1 Timothy chapter 1. But Jesus died, as it says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, using other titles of Jesus. It says, the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's Galatians 2. Or how about the Son of Man? We heard about the Son of Man tonight in their opening statement, but he said the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him and he will be raised on the third day, Matthew 17. And Jesus in his own words, in his resurrected body says, I was dead and behold, I am alive forevermore. That is Revelation chapter one. Third, the ability to be tempted. It says in James chapter 1 that God cannot be tempted with evil, and, yes, G and yet Jesus was clearly tempted with evil. Matthew 4, Luke 4, and Hebrews 4.15. Our sixth contention is that the New Testament use of the Old Testament is not a one-to-one -one equivalent. Notice Isaiah 7.14-16. through 16, It says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the refuse the evil and choose the good for before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted and in matthew 123 it says behold the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and they shall call his name emmanuel which means god with us in the original context in isaiah 7 there was a certain baby who was not going to reach the age of age of reason before the lands of the two kings which in this case is syria syria and israel they would be deserted. That baby, that baby that existed in the time of Isaiah is compared with Jesus. 
But the point here is clear that Jesus is not the same as that baby. There are three other examples we'd like to offer up quickly. First, Matthew 2, uh, 14 and 15 quotes Hosea 11. And in the original reference, the son called out of Egypt is the faithless nation of Israel. Another example is in Matthew 13, when it quotes Psalm 78, where a text originally about Asaph is applied to Jesus. And this pattern of interpretation where Yahweh passages are applied to people not Yahweh can be found even in the Dead Sea Scrolls, as well as these New Testament examples already given. So our contention in this debate is that prophecy is frequently used this way. We agree that there are Yahweh texts applied to Jesus, just as Asaph and David texts are applied to Jesus as well. Do our dialogue partners want to argue that Jesus is literally Asaph, literally the nation of Israel? So please don't grant them the idea that Jesus is Yahweh strictly using Hebrew Bible quotations. They have to prove that the context in the New Testament quotation demands a literal application of the quote. Furthermore, if we are not careful with the application of a Yahweh text, then we could wrongly conclude that the use of a Yahweh text for Jesus would actually mean that Jesus is the Father. And it is self-evident that the Son is someone distinguished from the Father. That leads me to contention number seven. The understanding that Yahweh is more than one person was developed hundreds of years after the writing of the Hebrew Bible in the New Testament and is historically anachronistic to read 4th and 5th century theological ideas back into the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament. There are five points we want to make here. The, fir the first one is that these post-biblical concepts include the doctrine of Jesus' two natures, the eternal generation of the Son, and the personality of the Holy Spirit. Second, Judaism was monotheistic, not Trinitarian. Third, there were no Trinitarians in the first century since neither Jesus' apostles nor the writers of the New Testament taught this doctrine. There were no Trinitarians in the second century, and there were no Trinitarians in the third century. Now, to close, here are some scholarly quotes that support this claim. Ben Witherington III, one of Dr. Smith's professors in his graduate studies, remarks that if Jesus had simply announced, hi folks, I'm God, that would have been heard as I'm Yahweh because the Jews of his day didn't have any concept of the Trinity. They only knew of God the Father, who they called Yahweh, and not God the Son or God the Holy Spirit. That's from the case for Christ. James Dunn said, when we compare our opening statements of the Nicene Creed with the picture which has emerged from the New Testament, it is clear that there have been a considerable development over that period in early Christian belief in and understanding of Jesus as the Son of God. Leir Hurtado says, Jesus' devotion also shaped and indeed required the considerable efforts of the next several centuries toward formulation of further Christian doctrine about Jesus and God. So in conclusion, you, the audience, are given the task to decide which side has done the better job of proving their points and making a complete case. My prayer is that you would set your assumptions aside as you evaluate the evidence. Which position is more clearly biblical and logically sound? Thank you.